going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus 31 this morning, Exodus chapter 31. Uh, For those of you that are new to Dawson, we are journeying through the book of Exodus. We have come uh, out of a section of Exodus where he, being Moses, has received the instructions for the building of the tabernacle last week. Those who are going to actually implement the building of it, we come now to Exodus 31. Before I jump into that passage, I I do want to say a couple things about what many of you here in the sanctuary have seen on social media, maybe experienced firsthand. Uh, Last night I was at Reed Chapel at Sanford University, and many of you know that since Wednesday afternoon there's been an almost continuous stream of worship through music, through the reading of God's Word, through testimonies, through prayer that has occurred on the campus of Sanford. It is not alone. Uh, This is a movement in different places across college campuses, uh, campuses that started, it seems, at Asbury 10 days ago where they had a normal Wednesday 11 o'clock chapel that just hasn't ended. Uh, Campbellsville University, Cedarville University, Lee University, Liberty University, others, uh, student ministries and other, uh, I I don't think it's going to end of what you're going to uh, hear or read about. What I experienced last night, I would just tell you, was deeply encouraging. I experienced last night sitting on the back row there at Reed at a place that's very dear to my heart as a graduate of Sanford through Beeson Divinity School. Um, I, I saw very sincere worship of God. I saw very authentic expressions of desperation and need and desire to worship him, the reading of God's word, the testimonies of God moving in the hearts of those students. It, it is stirring. It is encouraging. Um, I, I do think that we're in a, a situation where, where we want to sort of put a box over what exactly is occurring. And we have two temptations. Uh, for, for some of us, we, we want to have the temptation to explain this away. Uh, just by disposition, some of us are going to be a little bit more skeptical. And I want to just go ahead and tell you, I'm in that camp. I'm in the sort of skeptical that converge at times on, on the cynical. And there's a temptation to see these types of things and to sort of guard our heart and say, yeah, I'm not really sure. And on the flip side of this, there's a temptation to put this in the box and to, to deem it the sort of the beginning of the third great awakening. Now, we are all recipients of, of God's mighty movements across our land in history. First great awakening, second great awakening, the Jesus movement in the 1960s. Uh, God has moved in mighty ways across different regions of our country. And, and we're beneficiaries of that, sitting in these very pews in this sanctuary Uh, revivalism and the awakenings of God that he has brought in our history has has made it to where we're able to worship him and we're able to be faithful to him through the faithfulness of generations past. I don't know if this is the beginning of the third great awakening. How would I know that? How would you know that? How would anybody know that? But what I am seeing is I would hope myself first and foremost and all of us and last night as I was there at Reed Chapel for a couple hours, I just God impressed upon me that the posture of my heart should just be open hands. You know, not trying to fix or to solve or to explain, or, but just open hands because undoubtedly God is moving 
in a unique, fresh way among college students across our nation. We can see that observably. And the question would then be, God, how would you desire to move in my heart? The expressions of that are going to look different across our nation. They're going to look different from different individuals and churches and universities. But I I do think that our posture should be a posture of just open-handedness to the Spirit of God moving in the hearts. I I thought Dr. Taylor, Dr. Taylor, member here at Dawson, president of Stanford University, I thought he said it really, really well. He, He said it this way. I've told people they can call it what they want, but anytime students make themselves available to the Spirit, it is a beautiful thing to behold. God is doing something new and fresh, and it's just what we need. Last night for me, as your pastor, it was a beautiful thing to behold. Sincere, sincere worship of the Lord on uh, the campus of Sanford University. And I would say to that, it is just what we need. Myself, first and foremost. Uh, Exodus chapter 31, verse 18 is our text that's going to start us this morning. Exodus 31, verse 18, and then we'll immediately go to Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. What a summary statement. What a way to close this section of Exodus and bring us to new heights of faithfulness for the people of God, right? What a, what a way, I mean, what, is there any better passage to highlight, to underline, to italicize, I mean, written with the finger of God. This is a spiritual high point for Moses. This is a spiritual high point for the people of God. As he's been on Mount Sinai receiving the very words of God for, for God to dwell with his people. And if we are uh, making a movie of this, we could imagine a, a quick cut and, and a caption under it that says, Meanwhile, back at the ranch. While, while Moses is on the top of the mountain, having this mountaintop experience, what's going on at the foot of the mountain? How are they meeting God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Exodus 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to this golden calf. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Moses is receiving from the very finger of God at the top of the mountain the word of God. The tablets, the testimony. And at the foot of the mountain, the people of God, they're eating, drinking, and they're goofing off. They're worshiping golden calves. Did you see this coming? I, I didn't see this coming. Could anybody see this coming here? For seven chapters, God has met with Moses and displayed and told Moses how he plans to meet with the people of God. 
how he desires to dwell with them in the tabernacle. And here, all the while, the people of God at the foot of the mountain, they're tapping their feet in impatience, saying, anybody seen Moses? You seen Moses? I've seen Moses. We've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to take the bull by the horns and we've got to fashion our own God. We've got to have a God we can touch. We've got to have a God that we can control. Notice in this passage here, they come to Aaron in verse 1. They gather themselves together. There's a mutiny at hand. They, they command him up. Second in charge, we don't know where Moses is. We've got something we need for you to do. We need something before us right now that we can worship. Because we don't know where Moses is. And, in fall, and, and by default, we don't know where the God of Moses is. And so Aaron gives in, gives demands to the people of how we're going to do this. We're going to take all the jewelry. We'll melt it down. And next thing you know, they're bowing in worship to this young bull, this golden calf. The fall of Israel right here. It echoes back to Genesis chapter 3. The fall of humanity is narrated for us in Genesis 3 in six verses. The fall of the people of God, the original sin of the people of God right here, six verses. Just as the serpent comes in and tempts Adam and Eve to do what? To tempt them to doubt the goodness of God and to doubt the word of God. So we have the people of God here at the foot of the mountain who are doubting the goodness of God and the word of God. And it's easy for us to think, oh, give them a break. Give them a break. It's easy for us in this moment to to think, oh, what's the big deal about this here? It's just ancient history, nothing to see. Let's just move on. But of course, the same temptation that Adam and Eve fell pray to. It's the same temptation the Israelites fall prey to, and it will be the same temptation that you and I fall prey to. So we must have ears to hear and eyes to see. This is not just ancient history. We're able to see ourselves in the reflection of this text. Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, now these things, the stories of the Israelites, they took place, do you see this as examples for us? that we might not desire evil as they did. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, this last week, uh, one of our sons was wrestling in the state tournament there in Huntsville. And uh, I stayed one night going back and forth. Danielle and I were going back and forth doing things here, being there with him to watch him and other of his teammates. And it's really, really interesting. I saw several signs for Monte Seno. is a beautiful place. It reminded me a couple years ago, me and some friends of ours, we're up there for a race, the Mountain Mist Race. And just like Oak Mountain, if you spend any time at Oak Mountain, uh, wonderful trails up there. Terrain is beautiful there. Several times throughout all of the miles and the miles of trails, you've got these big signs that simply say, warning. You're going off the trail. Warning, high bluff ahead. Warning, steep drop ahead. There are these warning signs to say, you stay on the trail, it's beautiful terrain. You stay on the trail, there's safety here. But, but if you go off the trail, there, there are some things that lurk behind you here. There's some danger that is here. So we are traveling like the Israelites. We're journeying, and they've gone ahead of us. And, and we, to our folly, would ignore the way they have fallen, the way they have stumbled. And so as we look to them, we can see some warning signs. The first warning sign is simply the foolishness at the heart of our sin. 
the foolishness at the heart of our sin. I remind you of the chronology here. Moses has gone up to the mountain. He's received the Ten Commandments before he writes them down here. He goes back and he gives them the law. He gives them the commandments. And you remember in Exodus 24, they receive it. And they not only receive it, they say, we will do this. And in one fatal swoop, the first commandment, which is to have no other gods before him. And the second commandment, which is to not make any idols, graven images of God. One fatal swoop, they, they break the first two commandments. But it's, it's actually more sinister than that. It's not just that they break the Ten Commandments, the first two here. It's actually in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, we have God giving a prelude to the Ten Commandments. And he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we have this, this pathetic parody of God's word given by Aaron in Exodus 32, verse 4. Do you see it there? They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what they have done is, is they've robbed God of his glory and they, they are worshiping the substitute. They're saying now how foolish this is. They're saying now this golden calf has brought us out of Egypt. It's pathetic, silly, senseless, the definition of stupidity, foolishness. It's right here for you to see and for me to see. They're robbing God of his glory. And get this, they're substituting the one true God for this poor, pathetic substitute, which is nothing more than a golden calf, a lifeless lump of shiny metal. What, what a horrible return on investment. How foolish this is. John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, would say it this way. In this narrative, we perceive the detestable impiety of the people. They're worse than base ingratitude, and they're monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. Could they not see the pillar of fire and the cloud? Was not God's paternal care abundantly seen every day in the manna? Was he not near them in ways innumerable? At the first glance, this story doesn't make sense. The second glance, it doesn't make sense. The third time you look at it, it doesn't make sense. And I'm here to tell you it never will because sin is senseless. It's foolishness. There's no other way around it. They have everything. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God is walking with them, talking with them. The senselessness of the original sin, their sin here. They have manna coming from God has parted the Red Sea for heaven's sake. What more could they ask for? But boy, this is familiar. It's familiar to every one of us who do the very same thing that they do by trading God's generous provision for less than pennies on the dollar of God's infinite investment in each and every one of us. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Your sin, my friends, is not an equal trade. It's just not. It's a foolish investment. This is foolishness on parade. 
And the same foolishness is in the hearts of every one of us here in the sanctuary. I, I can't tell you how many times where, where we choose the path of sin, where we come to the consequences of it, and what do we think in that moment? What was I thinking? There's a foolishness to sin. There's a stupidity to sin. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a spouse as the, as the tornado of sin's consequences have to be cleaned up by someone and they're trying to sort through the best next step where they would say, uh, she would say, or he would say, I don't even know, I, I don't even recognize any longer my spouse. I can't, I can't make sense of what they're doing and what they're saying. It doesn't even make sense to me. Of course it doesn't. Sin is senseless. And I, and I want this, I hope you hear my heart, and I want this to be seared into the soul of all of us in this sanctuary right now. Because in the world, there is, there is a serpent that still whispers, I've got something better for you. I've got something that actually will satisfy you. I've got a path that is the actual path. And if we come behind the Israelites, there are warning signs that say, it is a lie. It's a mirage. It's that, it's that old George Strait song. You remember, I got some oceanfront property in Arizona. From my front porch, you can see the what? The sea. If you buy that, I'll throw the Golden Gate in for free. It, it's absolute stupidity is what it is. And, and, and we, when we're not vigilant, uh, vigilant, when we're not on, on top of things with our own spiritual life, we will believe the mirage, we will believe the lie, and it's fool's gold. There is, in this passage... The foolishness at the heart of our sin. Notice also there's the idolatry at the heart of our sin. You know that little phrase that gets thrown around oftentimes that we just kind of miss where did it come from? But you, you hear sacred cows. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from this very passage right here. Because this passage, it, it introduces for us the idolatry at the heart of our sin. What is an idol? Is it a golden calf? All of us have golden calves. I mean, they don't look this way, but it's anything or anyone that you think your security, identity, approval, fulfillment, or satisfaction depends upon. Let me say that again. What is a golden calf? It is anything or anyone that you think your security, identity, approval, fulfillment, or satisfaction depends upon. And John Calvin was right. Our heart is an endlessly working factory of idolatry. It, every kind of make and model, your heart is prone to make idols. And, and idolatry is, this is what's so subtle about idolatry. It is usually not the idolatry of, of things that are so obvious. I, I have a feeling that very few people that are followers of Jesus in this sanctuary are all that prone to go back and get your jewelry, melt it down, fashion your own family shrine to put up and worship there. And it's easy for us to look back on this story and say, man, how antiquated they were, how sophisticated we are. And there is just a, a lie at the heart of that. Because every one of us are prone to wander. Every one of us are prone to leave the God that we love. And we, we will fashion golden calves. We'll, we'll, we'll make them pets. We'll let them sleep inside the house. 
We'll feed them, pet them, nurture. They'll, they'll give us security. And there are oftentimes good things, our hobbies and our fandom that subtly over time become our greatest passion and actually our identity, the approval of our peers, the achievement of our children, getting to the next rung of the career ladder, endless pursuits of pleasure, being in control, being in control of everything and everyone, the pursuit of of health, all of these things in their proper place They're not intrinsically evil. In the proper place, these are not bad. Actually, these, I would make the case, these are all good things. These are good gifts that become idols when we exalt them above the good giver. And every one of us have that ingrained temptation inside of us. Again, let's go back this week uh, in Huntsville a good bit. And uh, came back Friday night, went to, uh, took the two other boys that weren't here with Danielle, went to the uh, BJCC for the Toby Mac concert. So going in the Von Braun Center, back and forth, going in the BJCC. And all those times I'm having to go through metal detectors. So I'm going in, I've got my computer with me, I've got my books, not for the concert Friday night, but for uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for the wrestling here. And I'm having to go, and every time I'm setting off the, uh, you know, the, the detectors there. Every time I've got to step out, they get the wand, they go up and down, they pull out and they get the computer there and all this stuff. And so I'm going in and out, so I get to know these guys pretty well as I'm coming back and forth. And so every time, you know, they're going to see it and on I go, on I go, on I go. And, and I kind of think to myself, boy, wouldn't it be great if we had these sort of idle detectors? Not metal detectors, but because we're, we're hard at admitting our own idols, Wouldn't it be great if we could just get the deacon body together, have an initiative, we could set up these idol detectors, they'd be at all the doors when you walk in, it would beep if there was an idol. That would be real hospitable, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? That's a good good welcoming strategy, or maybe not so much, maybe not so much. But there is an idol detector. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And as you're worshiping him this morning through song, through prayer, even the preaching of God's word, you know there is a beeping that goes on. Now, we're real good at repressing that. We're real good at saying, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. But if we're going to be honest, there's some of us that our hearts are beeping. And it's the Spirit of God saying, this good thing has become the best thing. This good thing has become your God. This good thing has become what you've placed your identity, your success, your security in. And you're saying, well, maybe what is that? I want you to look at your daydreams. So sometimes just by looking at our daydreams, we're able to see those subtle ways that good things have become the best things in our lives where we start thinking to ourselves, if this could only become a reality, if I could only finish this project, if I could only get this, if I could only go there, then I would truly be content. Look at your daydreams. You might see the golden calf that lurks in the background. Look at your nightmares, not literally your nightmares, but think of the things that are your greatest fears. What are those things, people, that you say, without this, I could not go on? You might, the answer to that question, find a golden calf that's lurking. Look at your fingernails. 
You're not literally, but, but think to yourself, what makes me anxious? When do I feel overwhelmed? When, when am I angry? And what causes that? It might be at the root of that, you find what you forged into your own pet idol. It's subtle for all of us because the enemy is sinister. There's foolishness at the heart of our sin. There's idolatry at the heart of our sin. And boy, we have been at the doctor now and the great physician has clearly said, hey, there's an ailment that all of humanity suffers from. And so we need the remedy. We need the prescription. We need the hope. And here in our passage, we find not just the foolishness of sin. We find not just the idolatry at the heart of our sin, but we find the hope, the mediator at the heart of our salvation. Hear it in the word of God. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is, this is Genesis 6 language. This is God saying, you remember what I did with Noah? The flood started over. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to repeat it here. But, verse 11, Moses implored the Lord is God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply, Genesis 12 language, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from this disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses intercedes Moses intercedes and God had purposed that he was going to wipe out these people and start over. But the power of Moses' intercession, the power of prayer, in this moment, he, he relents. Now, it's easy for us to circle relents, put a bunch of question marks by it when we're reading our Bible and say, did God change his mind in this portion of scripture right here? Did Moses talk him off the ledge? What is going on in this passage right here? And understand that this passage, God relenting, is not that God is changing his mind, but that God has compassion. It doesn't annihilate his people here. Now, it's really easy for us to get hung up on, on this passage right here. It's really easy for us to, to, to get lost in the weeds of the theological paradox of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. And I want you to hear in this passage, there is a simple principle for you to hold on to that your prayers actually matter. That God has ordained this world that he is the sovereign God who before the foundation of the earth has decided how human history will play out. But he ordains not just the ends, but he ordains the means and the means of God's compassion. And this story is Moses' prayers. And this is a beautiful invitation. Your prayer matters. Now, we, we want to make it into a mathematical formula 
Uh, does it matter at a 10% level? Is, is, is God's sovereignty 90% and our prayers are 10%? Is it 80-20 kind of split here? How are we doing this? And, and prayer is not a mathematical problem to solve. This passage is a wonderful reminder of this. Prayer is not a problem to solve, but it is a gift of God to embrace. So don't grow tired of bending your knee for a loved one, for a friend, for a situation. We worship a God who responds to our needs through prayer. God's will is accomplished through the prayers of his people. I know men and women who have been praying in our own church over the course of years for God to move in a mighty way. I know that there there are some of you in this room that are praying and have been praying for decades for God to stir in the hearts of his people. There's some of you in this room that have been praying for a, a son or a daughter who's been living it up in a foreign land. And I'm just here to remind you, do not give up. Do not lose heart. That God uses your prayers to accomplish his will. So draw near to him in prayer, knowing that your prayers actually matter. Be bold like Moses as you talk to God. Don't lose heart. And be reminded here that we stand in the place of the Israelites and we need a mediator. There's not one of us that hasn't looked at those warnings, stay on the trail, and not gone off the trail. All of us in this room know what it is to, to, to have a wandering heart that leaves the trail of God's will, leaves the trail of God's way. And we go on these detours of our will and our way. And all of us deserve the judgment of a holy God. And we need a Moses. We need someone who would stand in our stead. We need someone who would plead for God for us and praise God. We don't have Moses. We have a greater and better Moses. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he is our great high priest. He is our great mediator. He is the intercessor who has lived a life we could not live. He died a death that we all deserve. And we stand as sinners in the face of a loving God who would send his son to take our place. My question is today, I, I know that you know the foolishness of sin. I know somewhere deep down, you know the idolatry at the heart of your sin. But do you know the mediator at the heart of your salvation? Let us pray.